No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. It's a pleasure now to introduce our next guest, who really is someone who needs no introduction. Simply one of the best broadcasters and journalists in the business for decades now, the one and only Mary Carrillo joins us. Mary, thanks for being with us. Thank you for that introduction, my friend. Mary, um, you're a journalist, you're a color commentator, um, you're someone who played the game at its highest level. You do so many things so well. Uh, what, what do you, you know, how do you these days divide up your time with so many responsibilities? Um, I work for a couple of different networks. Uh, so I just uh, covered uh, the Canadian Opens in Montreal and Toronto last week for Tennis Channel. I also work for NBC. Tokyo Olympics will be my 15th, Jeremy. Wow, 15. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. I work for a show on HBO called Real Sports with Brian Gumble that I truly enjoy as well. Uh, and I'm adding to, to my pointy-headed resume – uh, by working for Animal Planet this December doing what the Yukonuba dog show. I do dog shows for NBC, huh. and now I'm doing my first for Animal Planet. So at this stage of my life, I'm 62 years old, I figure I'm going to do the stuff I love, and I love dogs. <laughs> well, you're doing a lot of the stuff you love, it seems, not just a little of it at this point. Yeah, it's kind of nice. I seem to continue to get some work, and... uh it's it's fun stuff. It really is fun stuff. I've I've already shot um, three stories for next year's uh, Olympics, and I think Tokyo is going to be terrific. Um, and it will be interesting as far as uh, the tennis goes at the Olympic Games. It will be the final Olympics for Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal, and probably Venus and Serena, uh, <laughs> and uh, hope you know Andy Murray if he can make it there. Djokovic might play one more after Tokyo, but I think there'll be a lot of a lot at stake in Tokyo for tennis. When you know, I I, I think back, um, you know, to I guess it was was it in '84 that it was a demonstration or exhibition sport in LA, and I think Steffi Graf and Stefan Edberg won when they were still amateurs. Obviously, the pros weren't welcome yet at the Olympics, and it took a couple of Olympics for the tennis tournament to be appreciated, I think, not only by um, by fans, but also by the players themselves. Now, is it really, does it really uh, amount to like a fifth major? I think it does for a lot of people. I, um, and, and for some people, like, uh, you know, uh, the Russians and the Chinese, for whom, you know, the Olympics are the ultimate uh, it means even more. Uh, I have a feeling it's why Venus Williams is hanging around. She's 39 years old, Jeremy. She hasn't won a major in a long time, but she has, I think she's been in four Olympic Games now. She's won a bunch of medals in singles in, and doubles. Um, and the Olympics mean the world to her. Um, so she'd have to qualify her ranking. There are a bunch of Americans who are ranked higher than she is right now. But the Olympics, I, I think what turned it, honestly, is probably the 2008 games in Beijing. Um, and it's a tricky time of the year because it falls in between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. So there are some players who used to think, ah, it's, it's not worth it. And in Barcelona, for, in for instance, it was on clay. 
So the clay court season was over. The grass court season ended. The hard court season was starting. <laughs> like, um, so, uh, but now it means the world. And for, for instance, imagine how much pressure 21-year-old Naomi Osaka is going to feel playing in Tokyo next year. She won last year's U.S. Open. She won this year's Australian Open. She's been slumping ever since. And she has made already, I mean, within a couple of years, Naomi will be the highest paid athlete, woman athlete in the world. She'll surpass Serena uh, and Maria Sharapova and all the rest. So that's a lot for her. And she's not taking the fame and the expectations easily. Uh, She's not wearing it lightly. Um, So for somebody like Naomi Osaka, she will be on every billboard, every, you know, she will be ridiculously famous in Japan next summer. It's going to be a big deal. We're speaking with Mary Carrillo, the tennis commentator, the Olympic essayist, the journalist, reporter for Real Sports, uh, who does so many things so well, still still at the top of her game, of course, at 62. And four years ago at this time, you know, we were talking about Rio coming up and Zika and water quality and all those kinds of things that I'm sure Jim Bell loved hearing about in the press all the time and everybody else at NBC. <laughs> And now here we are a year out from Tokyo and everybody's talking about the heat. How are, are they playing the tennis outdoors? I assume is it going to be, is it going to be as miserable uh, yeah. as can possibly be? It'll be rough. It'll be outdoor hard court. So all that heat's going to refract up into the players faces. And I got to tell you, Jeremy, last year's U S open was unbearable. Oh, it was so brutal. I, mean, I don't know how, how much time you may have spent there, but uh, especially in the two stadia, it was rough. I mean, Roger Federer, lost early. He lost in the fourth round to an Aussie named John Millman and he walked off the court into the referee's office and just stayed there a while. He didn't he couldn't he didn't even go straight back to the locker room. It was so it was so hot. So I mean I climate change is gonna have a lot to do with sports, isn't it? I'm on you know, there are especially to me it's I mean the the summer sports are rough, and I think baseball attendance, especially last summer, went down because of the heat. Uh, there are ski resorts uh, around the world that don't have enough snow now. There's, they've got to build, you know, in, indoor climbing things and, and ice rinks and stuff, indoor ice rinks. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. Sounds like a good story for real sports. I have already pitched it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is tricky stuff. It really is. One thing I think anybody who's watched you over the years has come to expect, and, and unfortunately this isn't always the case when we watch sports commentary, is um, total honesty and a commitment to to telling it like it is in the tradition of Howard Cosell, if you will. And and there are a lot of people who protect relationships above all else. And there are a lot of people who are so inside a particular sport that they come to see themselves as defenders of it rather than people who cover it. I think people expect um, much better from you. How do you, how do you manage that? Uh, Not always, not always easily. I've been, in just about everybody's doghouse at one time or another. And my my thinking on it, Jeremy, is and I can say the same thing about your reporting. You you I wanna be consistent. I, I trust somebody that is consistently candid and honest. Because you know I mean how else look, 
It's why I have such great respect for good beat reporters. They've got to live with a baseball team all year or a football team or a basketball team, and they've got to somehow figure out how to cover it honestly and, and respectfully and still be able to take swings at things when they go wrong. And that's what I've always wanted to do. Frankly, your father was one of my all-time heroes. Uh, I was lucky enough to know the late, great Dick Shep, and he continues to be one of, my, one of my idols in this business. And his son is a lot like him. So <laughs> um, I'm, ha- I'm happy to be able to say that and mean it uh, because there are, you know, tennis is tricky. Um, there, there are so many conflicts of interest in the sport. And as I said, I've been in every major doghouse from Andre Agassi to Serena Williams to Monica Seles. I mean, to people I genuinely like and, and respect. But if you, don't, if you don't call it cleanly, then what have you got? I mean, your reputation is everything. And, you know, tennis, is, it's a long, it's a you know, 10 and a half month sport. So what I do is I'll say something critical, like I did uh, in in the wake of the Serena Osaka U.S. Open final last year. As the words are leaving my teeth into the ozone, I know I'm getting myself in trouble. You told what was your truth and how you felt about that moment. Uh, How did Serena Williams, the dominant obviously athlete in her sport for the last two decades feel about, uh, and you guys have a relationship that goes back a long time, a good relationship. What was her reaction to your bluntness and your candor? Well, first of all, I called the match for tennis channel with Lindsay Davenport. And I, I agreed up, up to a point with everything Serena Williams was saying, Jeremy, she doesn't need coaching. She doesn't want coaching. Even when there's on court coaching allowed in the non-major, she doesn't take it. I mean, Serena, more than any athlete I've ever seen, can be playing a terrible match and get tight and figure out a way to win. I mean, I've seen that from her. I've seen her play with really, really bad form, down a set and a break, and all of a sudden she climbs her way back. And that's what I expected in last year's final. Um, And it didn't happen. And I was very uh, critical of her coach, Patrick Moradoglu, who basically started the chaos of that that final. I, I think the chair umpire, a terrific guy who's been around for decades, named Carlos Ramos, did a very good job. There, were, most people were saying, uh, you know, he should have given Serena a soft warning when she started losing it. I disagree with that. Everybody knows the rules. Uh, you give a soft warning in the beginning of a match, not towards the end of it. You know, um, I, so I was, I felt that the chair umpire really uh, was overly criticized. He was just doing his job. He's a no-nonsense guy. Uh, I think Serena kind of pulled, somehow she pulled race and gender and motherhood and the, in, the, the differences between men and women losing their minds during matches. Like she brought it all into one big thing. Uh, and I disagree with that. I, I mean, I don't like seeing... I don't like seeing, I don't like bullies, Jeremy. I don't like bullies. <laughs> and I thought she was acting like a bully. And, and to me, bullies have caused every problem in the history of our planet. And I thought that Serena was trying to bully the chair and he didn't take it. And that was a great pity. Now, how did Serena react to it? I don't know. I've never, I've seen her since. And we, we haven't talked about it. But again, I, I certainly go on record. Uh, 
every time um, I open my mouth. And I consider, I considered, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uncomfortable seeing her one-on-one uh, or asking her a question in a press conference. The fact is she hasn't played that much this year. Um, so I, I honestly haven't seen her that much in 2019. I thought, I thought she was going to win Wimbledon this year. I thought she was going to win Wimbledon last year. I thought she was going to beat Osaka at last year's U.S. Open. She's lost four times in a row now, um, and she's never done that before. The most she's ever in, in finals, including last week when she had to retire the Canadian Open. The most she'd ever lost in finals before that was two in a row. Um, so, look, I'm hoping for the best for her. I want to see Serena make more history than she's already made. Um, and there is so much that I respect about her. I like about her. Um, but I, you just can't act that way. And, and New York has always been a problem with Serena. Her worst uh, temper, her biggest, you know, her biggest problems have always happened at the U.S. Open. Long ago when it was against Kim Kleisters and she lost her way and she ended up getting defaulted in the, at the end of the match. And Sam Stozer, when she played and lost to her in the U S open final. And this thing last year, I mean, this, I think because it's the last major of the year and Serena basically shuts down her season after the open. And more often than not, she's trying to make history as she's trying to do in a couple of weeks. I think, and eh, the fact that it's New York probably doesn't help. (laughs) And New Yorkers (laughs) who, who want to see her get going. She's always had it hardest, I think, to hold it all together in New York. I've never seen her behave the way she has in New York at, say, Wimbledon on center court there. We're speaking with Mary Carrillo. And Mary, you know, you know this stuff, obviously, as well as anyone. And, uh, you know, this is what we do in sports radio. We talk about the greatest. We talk in superlatives. And and from someone on the outside, it seemed almost heretical uh, over the last few years to suggest that Serena is not the greatest uh, women's tennis player of all time. Is there is there any argument about it anymore? Is there competition? Can we still talk about uh, a Steffi or a Martina, or or is the debate uh, for all purposes, all intents and purposes, over? I can make that argument. I mean, I, I that Martina Navratilova won as much as she did and played singles, doubles, and mixed doubles is astonishing to me. That Steffi Groff won twenty two majors. That is a great number, except when you realize that her greatest rival at the time, Monica Seles, was out for almost two and a half years when someone stabbed her, literally stabbed her, uh, in the name of Steffi Groff returning to number one. Martina and Chrissy, had, they made each other cry just about every weekend for uh, more than 15 years. The problem, it's not a problem. Of course, Serena is in that conversation, and maybe at the very top, except that, she has not had a great rivalry, you know, not for a long time. We all thought in the early 2000s that she and Venus would be playing for majors, for major titles forever. And after a couple of years, that didn't, that stopped happening, except once or twice more at Wimbledon. Um, Serena's, uh, the Sharapova-Serena thing, I mean, God bless Maria Sharapova, but she hasn't beaten Serena since 2004. So the rivalry there is more for uh, sponsorship deals <laughs> um, and watch deals than tennis matches. Um, Serena had a terrific-looking rivalry with the Belgian player, Justine Enna, for a while. And then all of a sudden, Justine up and, up and, and, and leaves the sport, retires. So, I, you know, 
when you look at the overall scope of Serena's career, it is luminous. She's magnificent. Um, I think why there's still a conversation is because people like me very well remember what it was like watching Chris Everett play Martina and how consistently they got into finals, you know? So, and how much, how much they were playing. Yeah. I mean, and Margaret court is Margaret court's 24 majors is the one that Serena is going after. And people are critical of that saying, because Margaret started in the amateur days, uh, and 11 of her 24 majors came at the Australian open where quite frankly, a lot of the draws, they weren't, not only were they not full of great players, but they weren't even large. They were 32 draws instead of today's 28, uh, 128 draws. So, of course, these are barstool arguments, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very happy to belly up to the bar and blow the suds off of you and have this conversation, but <laughs> the more interesting conversation for me is on the men's side. Right. And again, until Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic put down their rackets for good, I, don't, I can't say who the greatest of all time. I can't really say that the greatest of all time is Roger Federer. I mean, if you figure that Novak's much younger than those guys. Roger just turned 38. Um, Novak's playing unbelievable tennis. He just won at Wimbledon. That got him to 16 against Rafa's 18 majors and and Federer's 20. Imagine if Federer had won that final and he had two match points, Jeremy. He would have gotten to 21 majors and Djokovic would have stayed at 15. That is a huge difference. It's insane. When we grew up, uh, you know, Roy Emerson's 12 seemed uh, as if it was going to stand forever, and half of those were Australian Opens, of course. But, but you know, then we could talk about Laver, right? 11 and all those years he didn't get to play because he was a professional, and the professionals didn't get to play in the major championships. Um, and then when Pete Sampras won the U.S. Open and got to 14 majors and said, all right, I'm, here's a good way to end, he had to have been thinking, well, that's going to last right. for at least a while. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, that's, you know, I, I genuinely thought, God, Pete Sampras is, he could be the greatest player of all time. Now people don't even have him no. in the same in the same conversation as the three we're watching now. Especially because he didn't win the French. Yeah. yeah because he doesn't have the career grand slam. Uh, it, it, it's, it's been fascinating in men's tennis. And I, before I let you go, I, I, you've got probably 17 assignments just today. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, at a time when you were playing the game in the late 70s as a professional and American men uh, were so strong, so powerful in the way that they continue to be in the sports such as golf, which along with tennis, the most international sport in some ways. Um, and what has it been now? It's been, what has it been, 18 years since an American man won a major tournament? That's something we never thought we'd say. Andy Roddick winning the U.S. Open. Right, in 01 or 02. Uh, I mean, that's something that seemed, of course, take it away from the big three and Murray as well, and virtually no one's won anything other than those guys. But but the Americans haven't been in finals. They haven't been in close. There's some good players, but they're none, none who is great. What's, uh, what's going to rectify that for the American men? Is there anything? <sighs> um... You know, the American men, and this is a, a bit of a broad generalization, but anyway, American men tend to lean on big serves and big forehands. Uh, they play pretty good-looking offense, not as big on defense. The best players in the world these days have all grown up on clay. And on clay, which I always call the sports classroom, you learn how to run. 
you learn how to be fit, you learn how to attack, you learn how to defend, you learn how to transition. Um, that is not something that the American men have been famous for for a long, <laughs> for a long time. Um, you know, the end, uh, I, I'm not sure how. So first of all, I, I truly believe that more American boys have to grow up on clay and stop using just their offense as, as their weapons because it's just too many people can get that stuff back now. The American men who are, you know, and there's a couple of nice-looking uh, young guys who are coming up. Francis Tiafo is playing well. Taylor Fritz. Uh, Riley Opelka is seven feet tall, Jeremy. You should, I mean, his service, it's, it's hard to even track sometimes. But are they, they compared against these other guys who can play so well from everywhere on the court and have more variety and are more willing to grind out long points? Um, and it's going to be tough. It's it's almost and people say it's cyclical. I never under quite understand when people say, "Oh, it's the, it's cyclical." I don't really know what that what that means. What I do know is that uh, Simona Halliper just won Wimbledon, twenty seven year old Romanian, not that big, not that powerful. Now in Romania is another story I've pitched. <laughs> I want to go. I mean, when she won at Wimbledon, she beat Serena easily in the final. She went back, and at the Bucharest Sports Stadium, there were 30,000 people cheering her on. You know, she's getting awards, and people are crying, weeping, just looking at her. And I mean, tennis is the biggest sport in Romania now. It used to be, especially for women. What happened? Nastasi and Tiriak? It's been a long time since those guys were. Yeah, well, they've, had, they've, had some, uh, they've had some very colorful, charismatic, <laughs> That's a good word. Crazy guys like <laughs> Ilya Nastasi, like Ian Tiriak. But the biggest sport for Romanian girls, in you know, it used to be gymnastics. Yes, it was. Nadia Comaneci, yes, the was. perfect ten. Now everyone wants to be Simona Halep. Mm. So in those ways, I believe in cycles. Uh, I think Novak Djokovic has inspired Serbia. Rafa Nadal certainly has inspired Spain to produce champions. So maybe if we do finally get. A grandson champion on the men's side, young boys will play, as it is plenty of young girls play. And we've got very good young girls coming up, including uh, maybe especially Coco Goff, the kid who got through the qualities at Wimbledon and got herself to the fourth round before Halep took her down. It's fun stuff. It's a good time to be uh, watching tennis. Well, we it's always fun watching Mary Carrillo doing whatever she does at the Olympics, on tennis, on real sports. Uh, and I'm not saying that just because you once – Offered me a job as uh, as one of your writers, producers at the Olympics about 25 years ago when we were both I young. sure did. Um, I, they offer is still open, Jeremy. <laughs> I might take you up on Not that, Not that Mary. you need me anymore. Thank God. Uh, you know what? Uh, all the help I can get. That's what I need. <laughs> but, but thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure, and uh, there's nobody better. Uh, we're honored to have you here on The Sporting Life. Jeremy Shep, thanks for having me. I'm Jeremy Shep. And you can listen to new editions of The Sporting Life every Saturday and Sunday morning on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app, beginning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time.